You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is author Kawaii Strong Washburn. In his debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, he tells the story of the Flores family and pressures they face from each other and from the outside world, set against the backdrop of Hawaiian myth. The book has received rave reviews from the New York Times, the LA Review of Books, Vanity Fair, and a slew of other top publications. And on a personal note, in a year where I have loved almost everything I've read, I just want to say that Sharks stands out as one of my favorites. Kawhi Strong Washburn, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So I wanted to start, I read a lot of descriptions of this book as I was prepping this interview, and while there's a lot of similarities between them, the focus is a little bit different in each, and it made me want to know how you would describe your book. What is it about in your mind? <laughs> it's every time I get this question, I have a hard time answering it. I think I'm <laughs> going to get better at it, but I never do. At its core, I would say that this is about a, a family from Hawaii that is struggling with ideas of who they are and, and what they are in the world, both in terms of how they feel economically and, and within their culture, and also you know, what it means to believe in things bigger than yourself. And it's a struggle to try and find some reconciliation between the economic realities of living in the United States and in living in Hawaii right. and the, the heritage and the history and the mythology of the place and, and where those things intersect. So like your characters, you were born and raised in Hawaii, though you're not native Hawaiian in the same sense that they are, as I understand it. Yes, that's correct. What was the Hawaii of your youth like, and how do your personal experiences there compare to the Flores families? The time, the chronology of the book roughly lines up with some of the ages. I think one of the characters in each part is roughly the age I was at that date and time. And so the, the islands, as they're portrayed in the early parts of the book, are very much like the islands were when I was growing up. I grew up in Honoka'a, which is where the book starts. And that's a, it's a sugar, initially it was a sugarcane plantation town, right? It, it's, it was largely built up around the sugarcane plantation that was on the Hamakua coast. And over the time that I was living there, the plantation shut down. And so there was certainly a huge economic shift in the way the town found itself and, and how it sort of, how people there made money and, and where they had to go to make that money and what everybody was capable of, of doing and not doing. But it, you know, it was a small town. And the thing that's nice is when I go back now, there's still some parts of it that are the same as they were back when I was a kid. And you know, the main street is still mostly the same and it's the same buildings that have been there for all this time. But yeah, you know, it's just a, that the Honoka'a is a, is a small town that is a place that I feel like is very friendly and relaxed. And although some things about it changed, some other parts of it, I think, have, have remained untouched by some of the bigger changes that have happened in the world. So you alluded to the way, some of the ways that the socioeconomic situation changed during your upbringing and during sort of arc of the book as well, since they kind of intersect. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how that change um, affects your characters and informs their choices? You know, the family is in is basically in a constant state of upheaval as a result of sort of being on the very like knife's edge of, of poverty after the, the collapse of the sugarcane industry. And so that drives them to have to make decisions in some cases that are driven by economics more than anything, right? And so there are these moments where the, there are sort of some miraculous events that occur early on 
that the family ends up using, you know, the parents recognize, oh, there might be a potential for us to make some money off of this, right? Right. And that's something that I think, you know, when you read the events happening and that this these are the parents of the child that these events are happening to, I think some people would be like, well, that seems like they're exploiting their child or they're taking advantage of their child. And yet if you're in a position in which money is constantly something you're worried about, then you're going to make decisions that are very practical with regards to that, which is like, well, how can I make money at any given time that's going to help me, you know, further further the stability of my family? And so a lot of the upheaval that happens, a lot of the places where people go, those things are driven by the need to make more money. Certainly when the all of the children sort of scatter to their locations in the mainland United States, they all they're doing that knowing that there's both a burden of the work and the effort it took their parents to get them right. to the mainland and you know the necessity therefore of them trying to make the most of that opportunity from an economic standpoint balanced against their desire to have some level of self-determination to kind of do whatever they want and not be beholden to this debt that has been they didn't necessarily ask for right and so you think you certainly see that in in Cowie's character, when she's struggling with the friction with her mother, a lot of that comes down to that problem where her parents are like, well, don't, don't forget everything it took to get you to where you are. And she bristles at that a lot because she feels like she's being defined in a way that she doesn't want to be as a result of the economic struggles. And certainly I think Dean as well, yeah. uh, as a character, he's another sibling like his entire goal is to make as much money as possible, right? Like he is ultimately, he's like, I'm going to make so much money that we never have to be scared again. Like we never have to be worried again. Uh, And so, you know, there's other things tied up with that. He wants a certain amount of prestige. He wants to get out from under his brother's shadow. But, uh, you know, part of it, I think for his character is it's written by a very, it's like he understands the terms of capitalism and economics, the extent that he's like, the more money you have, the more you can do with it, the safer you are. Right. And so he, yeah. he just embraces that and is like, I'm going to make so much money. We will be safe. Right. Uh, so that, you know, they have those different, the, the different ways that those socioeconomic elements come out. And certainly later on in the book where there are times where the, they're kind of feeling drawn back to Hawaii and yet they're living in the mainland United States. It's not easy for them to get back. Right. So there's situations where like the parents are kind of like the kids are like, well, I want to come home. And the parents are like, no, you can't like, you have to stay where you are. And so there are times where that's happening as well, because it's such a huge sacrifice for the family to be able to get people to come back and forth. And so, you know, they go into further debt and, and a lot of the strife throughout the book is driven by the fact that the family is, is relatively impoverished. There are times where they have more money and there are times when they have less money, but it's always, it's never something they get out from under for the entire book. Well, and this is a story that in addition to the sort of economic situation is very rooted in a sense of place in that physical environment that the characters are living in, in Hawaii, and I mean, in some other places too later in the book, but there's, there's a lot of sort of physical description in Hawaii itself. What did you want to capture in those descriptions and how did you approach that in your writing? I've, I've been to a lot of different places in the world and I've lived in a lot of different places in the world as well. And there's never a place that I've lived that has really felt as uh, majestic is not the right word and imposing sounds very masculine, but I've never been a place that has a presence, a, a natural presence, the way Hawaii does. All of the islands, I think, have their own physical characteristics that, that I feel like just have become a part of your experience the entire time you're there in a very different way on each island. You know, so at one level, I was trying to capture that feeling, just the feeling of being in this place of, of incredible natural beauty, 
but I also wanted to capture the feelings I've had personally when I have interacted with those those spaces, both in the islands as well as as other places in the world where I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to do things like mountaineer or uh, to surf or to rock climb or things like that, to capture the sort of the way that feels at a visceral level to interact with the natural world sort of in these moments of transcendence. And so I was trying to find a way to both capture this, the specificity of the physical presence of the islands, but also the sort of transcendent experience one has interacting with the natural world. And I, I wanted to put those things together in a way that almost made the islands feel like a person in the novel. Mm. And that's because as the novel goes on, there are some things that end up, that makes more sense, why that's something that right. I was working on. And so, yeah, I was trying to capture all those things at the same time. As you're writing a novel that very much is about the sort of physical environment in a moment where I think climate change, uh, at least until a couple months ago, was like top of everyone's mind. How does that play into it? How did that play into your writing and into your thought process? I've been working on climate change issues for years now. I, I, I've worked with several nonprofits here in the twin the twin cities where I'm living now, as well as other places on climate change issues, a lot of both local and national policy, right? Trying to trying to figure out the best ways to make policy changes that can help help the country move in the direction of, you know, restructuring the economy around the realities of climate change and both what's already happening and what's going to be happening down the line. Uh, and so it, that's something that's always on my mind. Even now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's still, for me, is, is work I'm trying to do on the issue of climate change because we don't really have time to waste. And, we, and, and I also see some of the things that are happening now with the COVID-19 pandemic and the way we see that it's hitting populations with different levels of severity depending on their exposure Right. to you know toxins and things like that like these things are all related and and so that was on my mind the entire time when I was writing this and I think one of the things that I hope people will see in the novel is the way in which the characters come to understand that part of what they're being called to do is to sort of redefine their relationship with the natural world and to get a better understanding of the intersection of their heritage and the future of the islands in a way that asks them to change the way that they live and to think to think new about how they can interact with the natural world. And I think that's really one way you can talk about climate change, right? It's an opportunity to redefine the relationship between humans and the natural world. As I understand it, you spent about 10 years working on this before it was published. Did your understanding and your feelings about a sort of relationship with the natural world change over that time? Yeah, I think that it's just become, it's become stronger. I think particularly as I've had children, you know, my older daughter is now six years old. My younger daughter is two years old. And I really want them to, to find a way to enjoy and value the natural world the way that I do. And so pass passing on those values is really important to me. And that also drives me to continually ask, well, how can I make that happen? Right. And so we're, my wife and I are always looking for opportunities to just help our children, like enjoy the natural world and to feel wonder, whether it's observing like a caterpillar crawling on the sidewalk, or if we're, you know, running along a trail that's on a cliff overlooking an ocean or, you know, all the different ways that you can interact with the natural world. We're always thinking about how we can help our children learn to just love and be you know, just in a state of wonder in the natural world. And I, and so I think some of that has, has become stronger as I realized, I, I, and I've, I've always had, I think just like deep value for the natural world, but it's only more accelerated and more pronounced 
um, when you have children, as well as I think issues like climate change, they just feel that much more, they feel that much more urgent, right? There's what we have now and there's what's going to be there in the future. And I already feel a sense of loss for what, what's coming in the future. I also know that it's, there's that much more I'm invested in trying to make the, the future as, as best a place as it can be. So I don't know how much that leaked into the story or not. But <laughs> So there's a, one thing that I think it's impossible to not notice reading this book is just sort of the depth of the mythology and folklore that is presented in it. How did you learn the stories, the sort of legends and stories that you present in this book? And what did your research process look like as you were developing that out? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so there are a lot of parts of this, that, the mythology that were just a part of my childhood. You know, like we would, my friends and I would tell each other ghost stories. Or somebody would come back from a, a weekend camping trip and they'd tell us a story about how this, you know, spirit showed up at the camping trip or whatever. And I think some of that is just, you know, kids being kids and trying to scare each other and, and making up stories to try and make the world even more exciting than it might otherwise be. Uh, but then there's also the mythology that I was familiar with just from growing up in Hawaii and having that be part of like our curriculum in school, mm. right? Like we learned about ancient Hawaii and part of that was learning about the mythology and legends of the ancient Hawaiians. And so there is that part of it that was just a part of my my upbringing. And I hadn't interacted with those things really consciously for years. And so when I started writing this, I, I was sort of operating there was, it was unconscious at first. Like I was, I knew that there were some myths and legends that would fit in with, with what was there, but I didn't know what they were exactly. And so I didn't mm. start with necessarily a specific legend or myth in mind. And as I was starting to work on different parts of it, I, I got a sense that I was like, okay, well, this, this is becoming significant enough in this section that I should figure out whether this lines up with the actual mythology or not. Uh, and then I would go and research. I, you know, I have a bunch of books on on ancient Hawaiian mythology and legends, and I would go like cross check it. And there were these times when the things that I were writing lined up perfectly with what was in the myths and legends. And I think most of that was that I had just subconsciously still kind of internalized those things, but I didn't know that. And so there were these moments of of this like really fun sort of serendipity and resonance when I would go look something up, and I was like, I didn't know when I was writing it that I was writing an actual myth or legend that had already existed. And then to go and see that that was something that I had internalized at some level previously, or maybe I just got lucky in some cases, I don't know. Uh, but it was really fun. And that was one of the things that, that kept me going. I could feel these moments of resonance where there were things that I was either unearthing or encountering for the first time that for whatever reason were already a part of me that made me feel like, oh, this is there's something here. There's something more than just me writing things on a page. So. One of the things that I find sort of fascinating about this book and reading about it, there are a lot of comparisons to other works of magical realism, which I always find to be such an interesting genre for someone to come up with because it, it's basically saying that you can't really have magic and realism in the same place unless you like create <laughs> your own, <laughs> your own whole new thing that is just about the blend. But right, of course, these are based in to some extent in real, real myths, real legends, real sort of spiritual traditions and practice. How do you think about that as you're sort of blending it and writing it in your own work? And yeah, what do you make of the sort of genre trappings that you've ended up in? Yeah. So I don't, you know, there's so many great works of literature that cross those boundaries, whether it's Ben Ockrey's The Famished Road, which I don't remember how long ago that came out, but that won the Booker, 
or I think people are familiar with like Salman Rushdie or even Toni Morrison or, you know, some of the authors that I pointed out in the acknowledgements who are influential on me as well, you know, whether it's Kiana Davenport, who has done work that has some elements of magical realism in it. Like, I think that's great. I think for me, it's fun, especially because I came from a background of like the first books I remember reading and loving were when I was younger are books that would be called fantasy or science fiction. Or, and I think in children's books, they have less of those like genres, right? You're just yeah. like, here's a children's book. <laughs> and it's, it doesn't matter what the like quote unquote genre is. Some of them are mysteries. Some of them are like ghost stories. Some of them are like a totally fantasy world, like Peter Pan. Like what is Peter Pan? Is Peter Pan like fantasy? Is it science fiction? You know, I, I don't know. And so I don't really mind being classified in whatever genre people do. I don't think it, it weakens the work. It only weakens it to the extent that that people use genres to sort of, I don't know, like disparage works of literature or try and categorize them in a way that makes them feel comfortable that they can just, you know, devalue those types of, of writing and things like that. And that's not the case for me. So uh, I, you know, people can call it whatever they want because I love things from all different genres and you can have a great piece of writing that can say really important things about the world that is a quote unquote genre book. Like look at, look at Octavia Butler and mm. like the sower, you know, the parable of the sower and you can read some things in there now and you're like that that is happening right yep. now like the <laughs> government she describes and some of the things that happen you're like she saw she saw this coming some level she realized this is a reality this could be a version of the united states and so that's a science fiction book but are we going to suddenly you know say that that's not an important work of literature because it's science fiction or whatever and so it's, it's fine uh, I, I i love that and i also think that to me that's part of a place like Hawaii, as much as it has been exoticized and turned into this sort of like packaged fantasy vacation for a lot of people, there are still aspects of Hawaii and the culture that I feel are, it feels to me, and this is just my own experience, that there's still a level of engagement with that mythology and folklore in a very real way. Like people will still talk about volcanic activity on the big island and they'll talk about like Pele, the goddess of, of fire and volcanoes. And and they don't mean that in like a silly way. Like they're they're actually talking about that life force of volcanoes and, and they're they're deifying it in, in a very real way. And when people talk about other parts of the island that way, at least they did in, in Honoka'a and in other parts of the islands I was familiar with, in a way that I'm like, this isn't, I'm not this isn't a fantasy. This is just right. the way that people can engage with these things. And so I also try to make it a point when there are the moments of hyper-realism or supernatural moments that happen in the book, I tried to write them in a way that felt like it rendered as close as it could to that in a sense of this thing is happening that I can't quite explain, but I don't want there to be a bunch of like fireworks and psychedelic colors and like, right. you know, laser beams shooting from somebody's fingers. But is there a way I could talk about things that might feel miraculous that it's ambiguous to the reader and even maybe to the characters, how much of it is, is, is their interpretation, how much of it is a feeling that they're putting a name to that they think maybe is magic, but maybe it's not quote unquote magic. And then how much of it is still at some level might be that, that bit of magic, you know? And so I tried to make it ambiguous enough that different readers can kind of interpret it the way they see fit, but in a way that also feels like it felt to me growing up in the islands. So I think that sort of takes us back, as, as I mentioned before, you grew up in Hawaii, but you're not Native Hawaiian in the same way that your characters are. Um, mm -hmm. These are not wholly your traditions. Did you have any concerns going into this about telling a story from the perspective of people who practice in sort of 
live in these traditions and how did you approach it? Yeah, yeah, I think that I, I definitely did from the start. But the thing that I struggled with was, so, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised the first 18 years of my life and probably some of the most formative years of my life were in Hawaii, growing up in communities that were composed of people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. You know, most mm. people I knew had, you know, and I hate to use race terms and things like that, but they grew up, they were like two or three different ethnicities, two or three different races, however you want to refer to it, uh, or more, you know, and that's just, there's a lot of that in whole, like there's all over the islands, there are people that have multiple ethnic backgrounds and and, then, and that was the way it was for the community I grew up in. And so when I was starting this out and I knew that I wanted it to be a book that represented as truthfully as possible the community I grew up in, I started to try and figure out, well, you know, to the extent that the story is going to be about the islands and because I want to include these elements of mythology and, and try and find a way to express what feels to me like the core the core existence of the islands and also to talk about some of the issues of, of colonialism that come up in the book to talk about all those things and to have the characters not be native Hawaiian felt to me like it would, it, it didn't feel like that would be right. It felt like mm. it would be taking something from the islands or at some level appropriating parts of the culture that although they are, are, I would say they, they kind of, are cross, there are cross racial lines. At this point, there's a very specific culture of Hawaii. And a lot of those parts of the culture extend among all of the different ethnic groups in a way that I, I wouldn't necessarily consider them native Hawaiian only mm. cultural elements, right? Uh, and yet the source of those things are still is still ultimately, you know, native Hawaiian. And and so in in dealing with that and recognizing that was there, it just didn't feel right to have the characters be detached from that in some small way. I would feel like it would be claiming that those characters, that the things that they were experiencing or that they were going through were theirs at the expense of, of Native Hawaiians. It, felt, it just mm. felt to me like at some level it would be, when you, I, I feel like sometimes in books, at least for me, uh, and I'm, you know, I've, I'm mixed race, I'm, I'm black and white. Again, I hate using those terms, but like my mother's African-American, my father is European-American or whatever term we want to use. And I know for myself, the experiences that I've had in the world in which I felt a lack of representation or understanding. And I've experienced a lot of that in the mainland after I left Hawaii. I never really experienced that in Hawaii. But once I left, I experienced it all the time. When people don't talk about, when people choose not to talk about race, they're talking about it just as much as if they were actually talking about it. And in the same way, when I was writing this, I felt like if I didn't have Native Hawaiians as part of the central cast of characters, then I would essentially be devaluing their place in the islands. And that felt, it just felt like there was no way around that to say like, oh, this novel is about the islands and it has elements of a ancient Hawaiian mythology, but none of the characters are Native Hawaiian. And then all I've got is this family. There's just the one family. And so if one of them is Native Hawaiian at some level, then all of them have to be. And so that was something that I just knew going in was, it was going to be a struggle. But I think for me, ultimately, there are so many great works of literature and so many great works of art that have been created by artists that deal with issues of ethnicity or identity that are not that artist's actual identity, right? Because this can even happen with gender, right? You can like, so does yeah. that mean a writer shouldn't talk about, shouldn't have a female character or that a writer of one race shouldn't have a character of another race? And I think that most people would say that, no, like a, you know, an artist should be able to do that to the extent they're able to, to recognize any power imbalances that might exist 
and address those and also make it a point to, to, to do the work to express the truest version of those identities that they can and to recognize that the part that I, that identity is going to play in the art and to not ignore it or, or to devalue it, you know? And so that was really what I did. I just engaged with it the way I could as, as the most true representation of the community I grew up in that I could, and that was as truthful to the material as it could be without excluding that core element of, of native Hawaii that I think is really important to have in the story. So, you know, I, I, I struggled with it for a while, but I ultimately realized that a lot of the artists I admire have at different points in their career written beyond their identity and have done it, I think, very effectively and in a way that is very powerful. And so I just hoped more than anything that I would be able, when I was doing this, to do that, to accomplish that, because it felt to me like the most true expression of the place I grew up. And so that, yeah, that's where that's where I went with it. For the best and possibly worst in industrial, avant-garde, and outside music, tune in to The Other Side of the Tracks, Tuesday mornings from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. on KSQD, K-Squid, Community Radio for Santa Cruz County. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Kawhi Strong Washburn, whose debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, came out this past March. So every chapter in Sharks in the Time of Saviors is told in the first person, um, and each one is told from the perspective of one of the five members of the Flores family on sort of a, would say, an uneven rotation. <laughs> um, <laughs> what made you decide to include all of their perspectives? The types of novels I've loved the most are the ones that I refer to, that I come back to more often than not have the first person perspective because I think that there's this there's a level of intimacy and in the way that you're sort of you're inhabiting this this consciousness this other consciousness as closely as as is possible through the medium of writing and for me when that has worked well and I've enjoyed the story and I have believed wholly in that consciousness when I'm done with the book, if it's one that I really care about or one that is, is powerful, like that consciousness never really completely leaves me. Mm. It's always still there. And, and so I feel like I've, I've sort of expanded my understanding of what it means to be human and my experience of what it means to be a human. And so that's, you know, that's a point of view for, for literature that I've always loved. And it's one that I think is, is also enriched when you have people that seeing their interactions from both sides or seeing them from all the different sides from inside each person is like that much more enriching when they have all of these strong relationships with each other, as opposed to like, if you have like a rotating cast of characters that are marginally, you know, interacting directly with each other. And maybe there's some central thing that happens later on or early in the story that's related to all of them. You know, you could do things that way. But for me, I think that when the characters have a strong link in a way that they keep coming back to each other and interacting with each other, and you get to see it from different angles, it gives the reader the ability to like, you get a chance to really engage with each character and form your opinions and reactions to both what they think of themselves and the stories they're telling themselves and what other people think of them and what they look like to other people, you know? And so I I just sort of settled on that mostly because I, when I was writing this, I had no idea if this would be, if I would be able to write after this or if like this would be a complete failure and I'd be done. I wanted to at least try to write a book that I think 
spoke to the the types of art that I've really enjoyed and be like, well, I really like first person perspective. And I really like that rotating first person perspective. This book seems like it would work with that perspective and I might not have another chance. So, <laughs> you know, let me do that and, and see where it goes. So. I love that. I love that. It, you know, it's something that you enjoy in books and it was like, why not try it while I got the chance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so now seems like a good time to have you read a little bit of the book. Um, and before you do, can you set up what you're going to read for us? What are we going to hear? Yeah. So this, this section I'm going to read from is the final chapter. The book is split into four parts. And this is the, this is the last chapter of the first part. This is from the perspective of the family's mother. Her name is Malia. And she and her husband, Augie, they've realized that their son, Nainoa, who was saved from the ocean by sharks earlier and who they believe is at some level blessed, is, is going to be some sort of miraculous figure, they've started to realize that there's something to him. Like he has these abilities, it seems. And so this chapter at the tail end of it in the scene, they're, they're going out to find him because he's not at home. They know he's outside somewhere. and they're they're concerned they think that they that he's you know something's happening they want to know he's left the house they haven't seen him it seems like something mysterious is happening that he's keeping very private and so they've gone out to find him and they find him at a makeshift graveyard that he's Mm. created for animals and this is the tail end of the scene in which they've seen him quietly privately receive an animal that's dying it's an owl in this case and he's trying to revive it. He's trying to save this owl that's, that's sick and dying. And so this is them seeing him af- right after that moment has passed that he's tried to save an owl. My mind was catching up with what we'd felt, what we'd seen. Augie, my God, how long has he been seeing things like that, doing things like that? I wanted to count the graves to consider how many animals you'd lived their last breaths with, how many times you tried and failed to make a difference. How many other things you might be seeing and feeling without us, all of it like running into a wall over and over. The thought that we'd be able to help you through this, to guide you to what you were supposed to become was total stupidity. Along with what we've been asking you to perform for us in our home with the desperate neighbors we'd subjected you to, the stories we told you about what we thought you were. It came unspooling for me as we stood there. I use whatever I can find you said, when there aren't enough stones. You'd come up behind us while we were doing our own thinking. You had more to say, and if we'd asked, if we hadn't, it didn't matter. You kept talking, waved the trowel at the grave we were considering. This was a dog, you said, some poi dog, like I couldn't tell what kind. You said you'd found it down there when you were out messing around along the canal, skipping stones and taking a break from everything. The dog had been hit by a car. Probably one of the shipping trucks or construction monsters that were always grinding and shuddering along the canal. After it had been hit, the dog dragged itself, all its broken parts, to the clearing. I can only imagine the jammy trail of its insides it must have left along the ground. You said that you tried to fix it, that when you'd laid hands on it, for the first time, you felt something important. All the broken places in its body. It was like a puzzle, you said and all you had to do was put the pieces back together. But you worked in one place and another would start to die. Then you'd turn to that place and the part that you fixed before would be unraveling itself and on and on until finally you lost. I was the dog at the end, you said, and started shivering. I was running on this bright road, paws ticking into the mud, 
my body this bouncing knot of muscles. It was like I was dumb with happiness. I don't know. I ran and ran and ran, but everything got weaker and weaker until I was just floating into darkness. You'd buried the dog here, and sometimes you came back to visit. You said it always made you feel better, lighter, as if you were, again, the dog, running. And standing there was exactly like that. Later, the field would be fenced off, and the fence would become a wall, and the wall would become another building, storing and manufacturing cement, and the graveyard was gone somewhere under the foundation. But I remember it as it was then. You explained that other animals had come after the dog, Flocks and strays, poisoned from antifreeze and wrecked from car strikes and being chewed up by cancer, crawling on their last to arrive here, waiting for you to give up their last sparks. I'm sorry, I said. I don't know what to do with it, you said. I keep messing up. Augie put his hand on your shoulder. No, you don't, he said. What do you mean, you asked. Feels way happy, doesn't it? Augie asked, right at the end. Feels that way to me, anyway. But you shook your head. I have to start fixing things. I have to fix everything, you corrected. Whole nights after the sharks, your father and I had been wondering what would happen, what you would be. I believe that graveyard day was the first time we truly understood the scale of you. If you were more of the gods than us, if you were something new, if you were supposed to remake the islands, if you were all the old kings moving through the body of one small boy, then of course I could not be the one to guide you to your full potential. My time as a mother was the same as those gasping breaths of the owl, and soon enough, you'd have to gently set down my love, fold it up into the soil of your childhood, and move beyond. I remember leaning back against your father's chest as we sat in the grass. Shadows had moved over the water in the canal. But far beyond that, the lights in Honolulu were winking on. The golden feeling of the owl's last flight stayed with me, even if the vision had long since coasted into the dark. Thank you. Most of the magical elements in the novel center on Noah and his abilities. And yet it's often unclear, as you mentioned before, whether those abilities are real, and if they are, how much control he actually has over them. Why was it important to you to keep those things ambiguous? Ultimately, we find out that his interpretation of what he's feeling and these like abilities he has are are wrong, right? Like there's at some level you figure out that the, what he thought he was, it turns out that isn't exactly what he was. And the same for the family, right? They have this idea of who he is, and it turns out that that's not what what it ended up being at all. And so I think if he had if he had if he had a full understanding of what he was capable of, first of all, it would remove some of the mystery, right? Because I think as a reader, you're getting to like, you keep wanting to know what's happening as well. You keep wanting to be like, well, what is he doing? What's happening, yeah. right? And so you get to experience that level of, of mystery along with him. But I think having it not ultimately resolve early and in a straightforward way allowed it to become a bigger part of the story than it was when I wrote the first draft. Because when I wrote the first draft of this, it was a little bit more straightforward it was less ambiguous and i felt like as i was you know as i'd come up on the end and i kind of knew how it was going to end and i had some of the pieces worked out and, and i was getting into the late stages of it it just didn't feel right and some of the earlier some of the later issues that are now in the novel sort of collapsed and just didn't they just didn't work you know with with everything being more well understood and i found that leaving that as a mystery 
it gave me more room to play with other explanations for, for what was happening and to expand mm-hmm. it in a way that ended up being really important. And so what the novel ultimately ended up becoming and the things that it speaks to, that really came out and that came about as a result of, of introducing that level of ambiguity. It allowed the story, I think, to, to have a much more important conclusion than it would have otherwise had if, if things had been so so well-determined and well-defined. There's a tension, too, between Augie, Malia, and Noah and the rest of the family, and that Augie and Malia share a very strong belief in their son's abilities and in the sort of conception of what he might be, while their other children, Dean and Kawi, are less sure. Where does that come from, to your mind? Is it just a matter of experience, or are there other forces at play? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that at one level there their rejection of that is their rejection of the, it, it really ends up being, they think that they, they have to reject that interpretation that the parents give because otherwise the implications are that they are somehow worth less than their brother. Hmm. Right? And so at one level, it's just their defense mechanism is, well, that can't possibly be true because if it's true, then what does that mean? I am. It means I'm not, I'm not as good as he is. I'm not as worth, I'm not worth as much as he is. So at one level, there's that sense of, of self-defense that's at, that's at play. But at another level, you know, something else that actually, while I was working through the revisions, ended up being an interesting thread that I started to tug on was, was something we had spoken to a lot earlier and the socioeconomic aspect of it. You know, and Dean really, to me, his rejection is one that is also because I think that he's, he's embraced the power of, of money above right. all else. And so to him, it's, he's like, you know what, even if you are some special magical person, that's not, that's not going to save us. That's not going to, our family is still going to struggle because you certainly haven't, you know, you're not the one putting, putting food on the table. Right. And so for him, I think at one level, it's also his personal feeling that, money is the most important thing for this family. And, and, and I started to think of that also as a way to kind of have him be the alpha male of capitalism or somebody <laughs> that's like, you know, in another world with another set of, of I don't know what I want to, want to say. Like if, his, if he was living a different life, if his family had grown up in different circumstances, he, he's the kind of person that would have been like, I don't know, like a day trader or something, right? Like he'd go <laughs> and be like, I'm going to make as much money as possible and I'm totally okay with that. Uh, and so that's his character to me came to represent like if you were to push capitalism to its most logical conclusion outside of any consideration of humanity, then... You know, it's just literally like, I'm going to make money however I need to. And what justifies that is the money itself. Like the money justifies whatever else, you know, comes along with that. Uh, And so his sort of rejection of the parent's interpretation is really more that he's just like, even if you think that's what he is, you're wrong in giving him the level of prestige you do because he's actually less useful than I am. He's worth less than I am because I'm making money and he's not. So there's also that side of it. An element of sibling rivalry almost. Yeah, that's I, that's all in there too, right? So those, those things are definitely mixed up with sibling rivalries as well as just different interpretations of the reality of their their economic circumstances. Yeah, there's a there's a line in the part that you read, which is part of an exchange between Augie and Noah, where Noah says, "I have to fix anything. I have to fix everything," and that really struck me as a sentiment that's probably shared by a lot of children who have an inheritance of intergenerational trauma, the way that Noah and his siblings do. That sort of 
immense feeling of responsibility for things that are really beyond your control, to make things right, to heal wounds that were inflicted before you were born. Can you speak to that? Is it something that you were thinking about as you were writing? It was. At some level, it's probably something that, sorry, this is the first time I've gotten, <laughs> somebody's asked me this question, and, and uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it, because some of it is very is very personal, but I, I think some of those feelings are, are feelings I've had, and I've certainly encountered them among uh, friends of mine who have tried to engage the world in a way in which they recognize how awful things can be. Like, how do you make that better? Right. Yeah. And, and I think the more you expose yourself to the way the world hurts, I, I think that one reaction, which is a totally logical and normal one is to sort of become numb to it and very cynical and, and just sort of say like, well, you know, so a lot of this is just bad luck and people end up suffering because of bad luck and there's nothing I can do about luck. But I think if you look at things differently and you start to recognize, you know, what drives inequality and certainly a lot of the experiences I've had both growing up in the islands and in the continental United States, one of the frictions that I constantly deal with that, that is so hard is again, you know, having grown up from in a mixed race family and knowing the things that my, my mother's African-American family has had to go through over the years. Whenever I am in a space in which I can feel, I can, I can feel the institutional violence that remains the legacy of, of the, basically the founding of the country I think it's impossible not to engage with that directly and not feel at some level like, well, I have to do something. I can't just live in the world as it is and sort of shrug my shoulders and say, well, here's the world as it is. And all I can do is, is navigate it in a way that keeps me as safe and comfortable as possible. I, I have certainly reacted in a way where it's like, well, what do you, how do you fix this? Where do you start? What can I do to, to try and, and fix the things that I see that are injustices? And, you know, I have a lot of friends that have had to deal with those same issues as well. A lot of us have at different times in our life taken on work in which we try as directly as possible to, to engage with those issues. And, uh, like, it's just like an unanswerable question. It always haunts you. And it's, I think it's very easy to be overwhelmed by it. And it's certainly something that, that ended up being a part of Nainoa's character is this sort of burden of expectation and the recognition of all these huge problems and this hurt in the world and having some set of tools that might fix it if you can just figure out how to, how to do it right. Yeah. And so that was something that um, I, his character in particular, although you see it in the other characters as well, they're all struggling with that and trying to figure it out. Do you think... I know his parents are capable of seeing that part of him and, and seeing the way he's struggling and contending with those things. Or are they too wrapped up in their own problems to see him as anything more than their child who has the capacity to save them? Yeah. There, so there's a little bit late in the story where I think Malia has a recognition of that, where she starts to realize, and it's at the, the, the later portion of the story where there's this recognition of how lonely that must, that, you know, yeah. how lonely that must make Nainoa, you know, she, and she realizes that um, pretty late, but I do think for the majority of the story, I kind of, I, I kind of had the parents living in this world in which they believe that the things that they're seeing that are hard at some level, he's going to be able to fix those. They're just, they're certain that he's going to be something important and, and capable of large scale change. And I think that, you know, I don't try to figure out how to talk about it without ruining anything. <laughs> in the later sections, that changes, right? I think at yeah. the, the very, very end of it, they sort of have a different understanding of, of who he is. 
and also who their other children are as a result. Hi, this is Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. for a mix of stories, interviews, sound portraits, and unexpected audio works from hidden kitchens, the hidden world of girls, lost and found sound, and local history and voices. Every other week, the Kitchen Sisters presents PRX Remix, a veritable mixtape of works by independent audio producers around the world. Tune in for the Kitchen Sisters. Davia Nelson and I are extremely happy and proud to be part of our new community radio station, KSQD Santa Cruz. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Kawhi Strong Washburn, whose debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, came out this past March. So one other thing I wanted to ask you to do was to unpack the title for us, because it, it's easy to connect certain parts of it to plot points. Um, but it, as I read, more, as I got further and further in the book, I just was realizing how layered it is. So what can you tell us without spoiling too much? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So first of all, the thing that's always funny about the title is I had settled on it as something that I thought spoke to some, as you mentioned, like these different layers of it. And um, I, I, you know, I wanted to have, I think that the juxtaposition of, of savior and shark is an interesting thing. Right. And, and so I, early on, I'm, because I knew that the, you know, the Amakua, the, the guardian spirit, if you will, that's not the perfect interpretation of what, what an Amakua is, but we'll use that for, for the purposes of this, uh, you know, the idea of a, a shark in that role and also having this idea of a savior and a shark at the same time is like, it's very intriguing, I think, to the mind. It makes you want to puzzle out what a story is about by, by having that in the title. Uh, and and I had also thought that the sharks could come to mean a lot of different things in that as well as, mm. as well as the saviors, you know? And so at one level, when we talk about economics and we talk about, say, you know, the idea of like brute force capitalism, I could also see that at some level as being a, sh- a, a type of, of shark. You could think of that as a shark, right? right? So that could be like a... As sort of a double-edged sword like on one level you have the sharks operating in the story as like a guardian spirit but if you think of a shark as in its you know potential aggression and, and being an apex predator as being uh, something that could speak to like the more brutal elements of of market-driven economics then that's like an interesting duality but for a while i kept talking to the like my editor and stuff i was like listen if you've got a better idea for a title because <laughs> i i finally arrived at the title and i was like this feels like it speaks to some of the themes and it feels like it's got these different layers but i don't know if it's like the best title and it's kind of long and it's kind of weird and so i kept asking my editor i would send them emails and be like if you have a better idea for the title please tell me because i don't have it does not have to be this title and then it just like went ignored nobody ever <laughs> brought it up and so i was finally just like well here's the title <laughs> uh but yeah i think that you know the, the, the savior part of it for me is it, it gets it like those mythology the, the sort of the story the family is telling itself and what the characters aspire to for each other at some level and just the concept of being saved as it, the way that it kind of removes your agency right in the sense that you you kind of it removes your responsibility for yourself and and kind of it allows you to if you're expecting a savior or you think of a person as a savior or a thing as a savior then it allows you to remove yourself from getting to the place that you want to be you know so there's that side of it and and there's that being played against some of these other elements of sharks and 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 the market capitalism and things like that uh and what the sharks come to represent as an answer to that idea things like that. It's like a very bad explanation of the title. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. I was, uh, the other part I was curious about, I mean, the structure of the title, I was thinking about this because I kept seeing 
uh, comparisons to Garcia Marquez and the reviews that I was reading. I was like, yeah. how much of that is coming from the title? Right. <laughs> um, but I was kind of uh, curious about the choice to talk about the time of saviors, um, yeah. which is maybe something that you haven't gotten to yet. So is there anything in there that's... Yeah, so I think that it was... So when I was writing this novel, somewhere in the middle of it, um, and I, I think I spoke to this in one other interview, I, you know, I started to notice more and more one of the things that I've always had to struggle with in, in the stories America tells itself about itself is the big man theory of history and how in a lot of, a lot of the sort of changes that have happened in the United States, history will later on collapse those to a single individual, right? And, you know, if you talk about the civil rights movement, without fail, people will like try and collapse that into Martin Luther King Jr. When the reality is there were so many people as, as important and significant as he was, there were all of these people in communities throughout the country that were silently doing hard, important work mm. that were a part of, of the whole movement that occurred, it, which he was a part of and became the figurehead of at some level. But he was just one person among many that were doing things. And so that idea, that's an example of an idea of like this, this sort of big man theory of history, where you take this large complex thing and you ascribe it to one person and there, everything that I feel like I read about in like s standard history will try and do that. And I had started noticing that happening with other things around me, even over the course of the time I was working this novel, when there would be an important thing happening. And as quickly as possible, people want the most simplistic version of that as possible. And so mm. they try and collapse it to one individual. You can even look at that now with like climate change, right? A lot of people will, will point to, to Greta Thunberg and be like, right. well, that's that's the climate movement and like nothing started until Greta was the one, you know, when I think most people that have been doing that work for a while know that, and she says this just as well as anybody else does, that she was just one person among many that were struggling through these issues and she just happened to get the attention for it. And so when I talk about in the time of saviors, part of what I'm talking about is that sort of what feels to me a very modern historical tendency to try and simplify and compress these complex changes into one specific individual. And that's sort of the, in the time of saviors part of it. And again, like the shark says, at some level, the way that they show up and what they cause in terms of flipping that, that narrative, because the narrative starts that way for Nainoa. He's the yeah, one that's yeah. kind of, they ascribe these big man theory, you know, of history ideas to him. And that's because of the sharks and yet what he ends up being later on and what the story ends up being about. And it's, it's very much different than that. So. Yeah. So for readers who are interested in learning more about Hawaii and its history or reading other books by Hawaiian authors, what would you recommend? There are, there are a lot. Uh, there's one, one that I want to mention up front because it's, it's a recent publication and I think it's a great one. This is nonfiction. It's called uh, Detours and it is a, it's written in the format of, at some level, it just roughly resembles like a, a, a guidebook, almost like what you'd pick mm. up if you were going to go to the islands as a tourist. It kind of looks like that and its visual layout and things like that. But it's a collection of essays. Uh, there is some some poetry and things like that in there and, and different like oral traditions are brought in as well. But it is largely a book that is very critical of the current understanding of Hawaii and the islands and what people think the islands are versus what they really are and what's happening right now in the islands, which is really this continually evolving and strengthening of Native Hawaiian culture and its political power and, and what it is starting, starting to do to redefine the islands 
in the terms of the Native Hawaiian people and the people that you know were there first before colonization and annexation took mm. place. And so this is a great volume because it allows you to get a sense for what all the current issues are politically in the islands that people are grappling with. And it's something that I, I had never seen a guide like that put together quite that way. So it's called De- Detours, a Decolonial Guide to Hawaii. I think that's the subtitle. Um, that's a great one. There are several great books of Hawaiian mythology. There's mm. one that's written by there's one that's written by David Kalakaua, who was actually one of the kings who was part of the, the Hawaiian monarchy. Um, so there's a book of mythology that he wrote. Uh, there's one by Martha Beckwith that's just called Hawaiian Mythology. Uh, those are a couple of like really great mythological books. There's also uh, Christiana Kahakawila came out. I think I want to say at this point it's maybe four years ago, something like that. She came out with a, a short story collection called This is Paradise. Mm. And that's a great collection. Again, that's one that's set in kind of contemporary Hawaii. And it's got a wide range of stories that deal with all these different aspects of, of Hawaii. That's a great collection. I mentioned Kiana Davenport previously. She has a trilogy that starts with a book called Shark Dialogues. And I find her to be, in my opinion, and I, and I don't want to say this to, to minimize her work as much as try and find a good comparison. I, she feels like a, a Marquez to me in terms of hmm. she It's this brilliant. The scope is, is massive and brilliant. And it sort of, you get the sweep of the islands and their change over time. And hers, her books are also written from a, from a native Hawaiian perspective. And I think that's a, a great collection of stories. I always mention Lois Ann Yamanaka as well. And she is an author who, uh, has written a bunch of different books about the islands. And uh, she she wrote two books that I remember encountering that, that were the first books I found that felt like they were written about Hawaii from the perspective of people local to the islands. And mm. so they use all the slang and the pigeon. And it's about, you know, some of them are about very rural parts of, of Hawaii and they have nothing to do with tourism or anything like that, but literally just people living in the islands, struggling with issues that have nothing to do with people that are not of the islands. And so they're very, they're very localized in a way that I felt like, oh, she's writing for, you know, she wants the reality of the islands to be there. And people will recognize that that are from the islands and people that have never experienced before, if they want to come along for the ride, they'll get there. But, you know, first and foremost, it feels like she's writing for the islands. She was the first author I encountered that I, that, that was the work that I encountered. Obviously there are many other writers that have done that, but uh, Lois Ann Yamanaka is in there as well. I could keep going, but you know, <laughs> those are, those are a few that I would, I would suggest to readers. Well, thank you. Uh, I think we're just about out of time, but before we end, what's next for you? What are you working on now? I am working on another novel. It's been a bit of a struggle, obviously, you know, my wife and I having two children at home and trying to work and take care of our children because of the, the pandemic that has completely demolished any real productivity I have with writing. <laughs> so I haven't gotten as much done recently as I would have liked, but I, you know, I have a novel and it's, it's, it spans a really large period of time. It deals with the islands, although the scope and, and exactly which islands and those parts of it have kind of changed dramatically. So I don't know exactly what the, the setting will be totally right now, but it spans about 200 years and has elements of there's like reincarnation and there's like a climate change future and a sort of like pre-colonial past. And, and so it sort of spans these two time periods and there's some ideas about reincarnation and, and climate change. And uh, it's, it's still in its infancy, but it's, I'm excited about it if I, if I can get some time to write, keep writing it. <laughs> well, give us something to look forward to. Kawhi Washburn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. 
To learn more about Kauai or to order a copy of Sharks in the Time of Saviors, go to kauaistrongwashburn.com. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay, right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Next month, I'll talk to Palestinian-American writer Zaina Arafat about her new novel, You Exist Too Much. The story behind the story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.